Okay, let's stand, shall we? And uh, in silence, I just want you to change places and go and sit somewhere else. We did this this morning and one person moved one chair. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we get into habits? And um, this morning we did a little, a little exercise. Um, if you uh, just cross your arms. Now cross them the other way. Now, some of you are very easy at that, but it's quite strange because even our arms we cross in one particular way. Instinctively, you can stop crossing your arms now because it, it gives me the impression you're not interested in what I'm saying. Um, when we get uh, changed and challenged in our habits, it can be quite unsettling, can't it? Um, now let me do another thing. Let, let me just ask a couple of questions here. Let's do a, a poll. How many of you have at some stage in your lives lived in a foreign culture? Okay. Um, how many of you are living now in a foreign culture? It's not your home culture. <laughs> Don't make it difficult, Michael. Okay. Now, what about, I mean, it's interesting because that is uh, pretty typical of the congregations that we have in St. Barnabas, incredibly international, and that's one of the great strengths of our church. But what about this question? Are there any people here who, have, uh, who, are, who are now in a foreign culture and cannot return to their home culture? This morning we had some Iranians in our congregation who, were, who stood up at that point because they've given everything in order to trust in Jesus Christ. And they've had to leave their home. And throughout the world, there are countries where if you become a Christian, you have to leave because actually your life is at risk. And when you leave, you find yourself in in a foreign culture, not because you chose to go there, but because you're forced to be there. Now, for those of us who are used to traveling, being in a foreign culture is a, is a, is a challenging thing enough, isn't it? Because of the language and because of the customs, but there's an element of excitement in about, about that. But imagine being in a culture and you haven't chosen to be there. In fact, you long to be home, but you're forced to be there. Now that is the situation of the people of God at the time of our reading. They are exiled. The exile was, in the Old Testament, the, probably the most traumatic moment of the people's history. They found themselves in Babylon. It was the capital of the great world power of the time, and they were there through no choice of their own. In fact, they would have given anything to be back home. 
they were exiles. Today we use different words to describe people who have had to move. Sometimes we talk about migrants, those who are on the way and moving. Sometimes we, we talk about refugees, people who seek refuge in a place. But exiles are those who, through no fault of their own or choice of their own, find themselves in a foreign land. And that was the painful situation of the people of God at the time of Jeremiah the prophet, uh, this passage that we heard this evening. And we're going to explore that a little bit more. It was a time of incredible turbulence for them. Uh, extraordinary mixed emotions. Anger, confusion, questions. Especially because their faith was rooted in a land. Do you remember that? We've seen over the last few weeks, for those who've been with us, how, how God uh, promised to Abraham, a land, and then, and then through Moses freed the people to go to the promised land. The land was the symbolic um, promise of God. Of course, in the land they also had blessings. It was a land of milk and honey. And suddenly they find themselves far away. You get traces of this throughout the Old Testament because it was a moment that really marked the people. But here's one trace of it in the Psalms, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? In fact, this psalm goes on. How can, uh, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, Jerusalem? If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy? Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's the people of God in exile. And it all started so well. Do you remember how their history reaches a high point with King David, who, who receives extraordinary promises from God. Here's an example. I will make your name great, says God. I will provide a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever, and your throne shall be established forever. That was the promise made to David. It's like the start of an extraordinary time of promise, except that the reality is that things went downhill, not uphill from then on. The people progressively turned away from God. In fact, shortly after David, after his son Solomon, the, the kingdom splits in two. And you have ten tribes that go to the north, and two tribes that go to the south. 
And so as, you, as we follow the history of the people of God, it's suddenly a history in two bits now. And each kingdom has its king and succession of kings. And the kings, little by little, follow their own way. And at that period of time, you have men of God who are raised up to remind the people of what their calling is. And they're called prophets. And in the northern, in the northern um, kingdom, you've got two prophets in particular who, who tell the people to come back, to be faithful to God. Amos and Hosea. And they're calling the people. Now, they're not primarily uh, sort of fortune tellers or looking ahead, but they are saying what will happen if the people don't remain faithful to God. But the kings and the people ignore, and in the year 722 BC, catastrophe strikes the northern kingdom, and it is totally destroyed by the Assyrian army. Assyria was the great regional power whose capital was in Nineveh. And they came and they destroyed the northern kingdom so totally that even today we speak about the ten lost tribes of Israel. They ceased to exist. Now you'd think in the south they'd learn a lesson from that, wouldn't you? You'd think that they'd say, oh my goodness, if that's what happens when we turn away from God, these are the consequences of, of trying to do it our own way. You'd think they'd listen to the prophets and God sent prophets there too. In the south and the southern kingdom, you had prophets like Micah who called out the people to be a people of justice, a people following God's way, Isaiah. And then you have Jeremiah. Jeremiah who was called as a young, as a young lad and spent his life calling the people back to God and telling them what would happen if they didn't. The problem is, did they learn any more than the northern kingdom? Not at all. One or two of their kings are good kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, but for the most part, they turn away from God. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom is invaded by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And all the great people, the influential people, the political, the religious leaders, all the instructed people, people who'd had education, they're all taken away into exile in Babylon. And it is the moment of the most extraordinary crisis that any people can know. The only people who are left in Jerusalem are those who have no capacity for moving because they're too old or infirm. Or they have no education. You have some, some land, people who work the land. And then one or two others, including a prophet, prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who's been warning them all this time. Well, actually, he gets left behind. The others are deported. Poor Jeremiah is sitting there, surrounded by a pile of stones. I mean, can it get any lower than that? And so here we have the people suddenly in exile. And the question is, what's happened to all the promises? God promised that we'd have a land, no land. 
He promised we'd have a king and a dynasty forever. No king. We built the temple to symbolize his presence and the temple's been destroyed and here we are in a foreign land. What does it mean? Where's God in all this? And of course they were asking the wrong question. It wasn't where is God in all this. It's where were they when God was calling them? Now, when you're in a situation of crisis, typically there are, there are two ways of, of, of reacting. You can go into survival mode. Have you ever had that when you've got like absolute sort of urgency? You've got things you've got to do and nothing seems to be going right. What do you do? You sort of hunker down and you go into survival mode, don't you? You think, how can I preserve what I've got? And so you, you turn in on yourself and that is what the people did. In exile... Some of them assimilated to the Babylonian culture around, but some of them did the opposite and they resisted, but by, by trying to be strong and by looking in on themselves. Now, not all of that was bad because the period of the exile was actually the time when they, when they, they dug deep into their traditions. They had no longer any king, land or temple, but they did have the law. And so they spent time studying the law. And it was probably in that period that the Old Testament as we know it was finally edited in its current form. It was also in that time that they developed the rabbinic tradition of Pharisaic sort of studying of the law. It was in that time that synagogues started springing up, small groups of people centered around the reading of the law because there was no temple anymore. Okay, so there are good things happening, but it's all inward looking and it's all about preservation. It's survival. But there isn't just a survival mode. And God provides for a different perspective. You see, humanly speaking, the people have nothing. Everything's gone. But God has not left them. And there is a second mode that it is possible to have when you're faced with crisis, and that is not survival mode, that is revival mode. Where you believe that actually things can begin again. And that it's just possible for new life to break out. You know probably, like I, that the word crisis, krisis in Greek which means fundamentally a sort of decisive opportunity or decisive moment. It can mean either judgment or it can mean opportunity. And the people were in Babylon and convinced that they were under judgment and this was the end. The promises of God had come to nothing. And God raises up prophets who speak of opportunity of a God who redeems. And the first of those, hey, here's a surprise, is Jeremiah. Why is it a surprise? Because anybody who's read the book of Jeremiah will see that Jeremiah is not the happiest of books. Jeremiah was a bit of de uh, depressive, and it's not surprising the amount of things that he had to put up with. For the whole of the first part of his life, he's telling people what will happen if they do not come back to God. And he's doing it in the context of false prophets. You know, false prophets are those who stroke you in the direction that you want to hear. All the political leaders, they didn't believe that catastrophe was coming, so they had prophets who they paid to stroke them. Meanwhile, Jeremiah's saying, wake up, disaster will come if you do not return to the Lord. And for his 
speaking out, he's put in prison, he's persecuted, he's even thrown into a well. Poor Jeremiah. And there he is, Jeremiah, he's been left behind, all the other great people have been deported, and they're in Babylon, and here's Jeremiah, and he decides to write them a letter. Now, what would you put in the letter if you wrote to them? I'll tell you what I'd put. I told you so. I told you so. Tough. <laughs> I warned you. And what I warned you has happened. Now you've just got to suffer the consequences. I'd write a hard letter. But you know, the letter that we have from Jeremiah is extraordinary. Because something has happened. And the letter Jeremiah writes to the people has a smile on it. It's a letter of promise. It's not a letter of condemnation. It's a letter that says, instead of being in survival mode, turn into revival mode. Where you are, in the midst of your tragedy, believe that God can work. Don't even just wait until something external happens. He takes you back to this land that you long for. That will happen. But where you are, invest. Allow the Lord to work. Look to bless. It's an extraordinary thing. Look what he says. Build houses and settle down. He's writing to these guys. They're waiting. They're looking for one. There's only one thing they want. It's to be up and back home. And he's saying, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Because if it prospers, you prosper. And then he continues, and here's the promise. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. He's in Jerusalem, remember? I will do it. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a, a hope and a future. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. Revival mode. God is promising hope, something new. Well now, it's interesting. Jeremiah, as he then carries on, starts talking about a new heart. It's not just circumstances that will change. God will do a new thing. And he will actually change their hearts. This is much bigger than they imagined. Now there's another prophet who comes along around the same time, okay? And he's, 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 not, he's not in Jerusalem. He's been taken with all the others into exile. He's in Babylon now. And unlike Jeremiah, who was sort of, you know, in the prophetic line, he's a priest, right? He's a priest, and, and presumably when he was in in Jerusalem, he spent his time doing priestly things, you know, doing the liturgy and, and, and doing all the sacrifices and things. But suddenly he's in Babylon and there's no temple anymore. There's no temple worship. What's a priest meant to do? And so he spends his time praying and seeking God and he refuses to be in survival mode. He seeks God. And as he seeks God, he starts having visions that show him too there's a bigger picture. That God's plans do not finish in exile. 
And as he starts having these, these visions, one of them, he sees the temple in, in his mind, the temple of, in Jerusalem, his, his workplace. And in his vision, he sees God's presence rising out of the temple and coming across to Babylon where all the people are and then settling with them. Like, isn't that amazing? God's presence is not limited to a place. God can come and bless them in exile, in a foreign land. He can be there and do things and God will dwell with them there. And then Ezekiel, because it is his name, Ezekiel's vision continues and he sees the presence of God coming back to a newly founded temple with the people restored, with their new heart changed. And something's going to happen that isn't just a physical change there. There's going to be revival, renewal. And so one of his most extraordinary visions is of a moment where he's transported in his mind into a valley. And he sees in that valley just hundreds of dry bones. It's like the scene of, of a catastrophe, the scene of a, of a huge military defeat. But many years later, and all that's left are just dispersed bones. It's so dry, it's dead. And Ezekiel looks and, and this is what God says to him. He says, son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. They say, our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will take the Israelites, says God, out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from around and I will bring them back. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. There's the promise. But they hear it in the middle of disaster. And they haven't seen it yet. Now, there's another prophet who comes at the same time and also is in exile. And he's also there, and his name is Daniel. And Daniel takes seriously what Jeremiah said about investing in the economy and the culture, in blessing people. And Daniel, the text tells us, rises to a place of extraordinary prominence in the Babylonian culture and society. He becomes the number three in Babylon. And it's always without compromising his faith and seeking to follow God. And there he is, Daniel. And Daniel also has visions because God is also giving Daniel a bigger picture. And amongst the visions that Daniel has, here's one. Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is one that will be never destroyed. Can you see how much bigger this is? Suddenly there's going to be a new king who will lead the people. But... But somehow he's also himself going to be worshipped. That's strange. And, and he's going to be worshipped by all nations. We're no longer talking about just a return to the land with their own little king. We're talking about blessing for the world. 
And so Daniel sees something so much bigger that God is going to do. And around that time, we have another prophet. He's also called Isaiah. If you ever take your book of Isaiah, you'll see that there are 66 chapters in it, okay? 36 of them, and then 27. And the first 36 chapters clearly relate to the earlier stage in, in the southern kingdom before the exile. But the second section, 27 chapters, clearly relate to the exile. Now, probably it was two prophets in the same tradition. But if we had with... Um, um, with Jeremiah, a prophetic tradition, with Ezekiel, a, a priestly tradition, with Daniel, a wisdom tradition. Now we've got a royal tradition. And, it's, and, and Isaiah's going to say the same thing. He's going to turn to the people and he's going to speak hope. And in Isaiah chapter 40, he speaks out, comfort my people, Jerusalem. Say to my people, say to Jerusalem that her hard labor is ended. And he brings and he, and he speaks hope. And Isaiah starts to talk about a servant who will come and lead the people. Yet again, another leader that's, that's, that's coming up in the prophetic ideals. And he says here, but this servant will have a big, big role. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then he says this, he says, here is my servant looking at the deliverer that God is gonna bring, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. See, the former things have taken place and the new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God is promising to do a new thing that will not just touch the nation but the world through a renewed nation and through a servant who will lead them. Now, the interesting thing is that as you begin to look into Isaiah's prophecies and the, and the words that Isaiah has for this exiled people, the promises, as you look into it, you see that actually this servant, well, he seems to be doing a very strange thing. Because this servant leader, this servant king, instead of avoiding difficulties, seems to welcome them almost. And we have that extraordinary passage in Isaiah 53, where it talks about the servant king who is rejected, killed, and who takes upon himself the sin and the transgressions of many, in order that renewal can take place. Something very strange is happening here. And so through the different, through our four different witnesses here, Jeremiah with the prophetic tradition, Ezekiel with the priestly tradition, Daniel with the, the wisdom tradition, and Isaiah with the royal tradition, they're all looking to the day when God will send someone who will do a new thing. And it won't just be in order to bring them back to a small territory and give them a tiny temple. It will be to renew the earth by changing people's hearts. Can you see that? And suddenly God's dwelling place will be with men, not in one place, but wherever his spirit is poured out. 
And so it is that about 400 years later, we have a young man aged 30 who in his village stands up in the synagogue and he reads these words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There's the prophet. To bind up the brokenhearted, to, to, to bring freedom to the prisoners, to give sight to the blind. He's reading from Isaiah. This is what they're all longing for. And then the text says, um, when Jesus had finished reading the passage, he sat down and everybody, everybody's eyes were on him. And then he said, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine that. Because of course, they're physically now back in the land. 400 years later, they've sort of drips and drabs, they've come back, but they know that the promises haven't been fulfilled. They know that the, the spirit hasn't been poured out, but with Jesus, something changes. And so we discover the, the power of the old, um, the, the, the old prophecy from one of the other prophets, Joel, who says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And they will prophesy. So here's the thing. As we look at that extraordinary story and see how it points towards the liberator Jesus, who comes as the king, as the prophet, as the wise man, as the priest. This Jesus, who doesn't step away from suffering, but meets the people in the suffering. It's almost as if Jesus has his own exile moment when he goes to the cross. There he is in the midst of the pain and he walks through it to life. The old prophecy of Ezekiel, Jesus is the one who comes to life. And as he does, he promises life to the people. Jesus doesn't choose survival mode. He chooses revival mode. And the choice for us tonight is very clear, I think. Those of us who are refugees, migrants, because in the New Testament, we're, we're called that, aren't we? 1 Peter chapter 1 says, to those who are exiled in this world, to those who are without a, without a home, we're just passing through. What is our attitude when things get hard? Are we in survival mode or are we in revival mode? Because God meets us in the hard place. Because that's what Jesus does. But I think tonight there's a second application. It's not just are we in survival or revival mode. It's also that God calls us to be prophets. As he pours out his spirit, the spirit of Jesus upon us, so that we can announce good news to those around. Because God wants to bless. And we are surrounded by exiled people. People who, for their fault or no fault of their own, find themselves in a foreign place. For them, is it judgment or opportunity? It depends on whether they hear the promise. 
And so for us to choose revival mode isn't just about me, it's about becoming a prophet and speaking new life to dry bones. Because that's what God wants to do. He loves it. He did it in Jesus. And he longs to do it around us. And the people he'll use are the people who are themselves those who've been brought alive by his promises. Wow. Well, we've done a lot this evening. I'm... But let's respond, shall we, to the invitation of God. He wants to revive us so we can stand and speak life. Let's just take a moment to pray. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The promise that comes through Isaiah. And then Jesus who comes and he looks at his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world.